Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Change in the Climate podcast. Of course, as you know, this show is brought to you by Climate Change Realty, the only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its commissions to nonprofits dedicated to fighting climate change. If you are looking to create climate action on your next real estate transaction, all you have to do is visit ccrealty.org, and we will find you an agent in your area who's willing to offer 50% of their commissions to help save the planet. Now let's dive into the podcast. Delaney, it's it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for taking some time to come on the podcast. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. You're welcome. Really welcome. It's going to be a great conversation. And you know, we always like to get us started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. All right. So I am originally from a small beach town in New York. It's like a barrier island that basically protects Manhattan and Long Island. It's called Long Beach. Um, I grew up there surfing and very out like doorsy in nature all the time. Um, and as a surfer ended up going to San Diego state, um, moving to California when I was like 18 and getting involved here. Um, but what really prompted like where I got into climate and like more social justice work was we had hurricane Sandy hit our hometown. Like when I was, I believe 16 or 15 and it like devastated oh really okay yeah oh yeah that's right where where are you from jersey there you go yep yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so hurricane sandy happened and it was insane to me like just the intensity of it watching it we had evacuated for previous hurricanes and then didn't evacuate for that because like sometimes they tell you to evacuate and like you don't think like nothing really happens or it's like more casual and just a little bit of flooding so we were there and like look our house was shaking and we were on the bay and just like watching it all go down like those big military trucks like went down my tiny like no one goes down my road and this like military unit came down on thanksgiving day like passing out food And it was just like very eye-opening in terms of like how badly, how bad it was. Um, So I've always just been like, as a like outdoorsy person and having all that happen, just like watching not only like the way we're affecting our climate as individuals and as companies and, and the world, but like also the way the reactions are and how like inequitable that is. Um, and it's always like just stuck in my mind. So yeah, went, um, went from there started working at a nonprofit with children, um, fundraising and like creating advocacy around their programs um, in Mexico, Nicaragua. So was doing that for a while and then went backpacking through Europe and basically met our founder of F4CR at the airport leaving COP. (laughs) Yeah. And so he, um, he was sitting across from me and I was on like an eight hour layover in Madrid and like, velvet overalls and my backpacker's backpack just like sitting there reading my book and he was talking to the guy next to me asking about the climate and like the guy just figured like everything was going to be fine and was like pretty lax about it and I was like seething to talk to him and like ask about cop and everything and just really got into a great conversation and from there came to here and here we are (laughs) awesome I, yeah. I love how you I love how you said you went to school to surf, which is like true. Yeah, I went I, I went to school. It's like me, like which is true. It's like yeah, I went I went to school. I went to see you Boulder. I went to school school to get stoned. You know that, that's yeah. that's, what I, that's what I went to college for, which is just obvi- obviously the truth. Um, yeah. <laughs> what made you decide after school to immediately start working for a nonprofit? Where where did that idea come from? Um, well, actually, so the fir- my very first year out of college, um, I started working for a recruiting company and okay. I was like their operations coordinator, their front desk person. I wore like that, the, your fancy work clothes, like pantsuits every day. 
and I was miserable. Um, and what we, what the best part or my favorite part of the job was, was that I did the events, which is a fundraising event. And the fundraising event that I did for that recruiting company was actually for the previous nonprofit I worked for. And I like realized I was really good at it. And I also like, I realized also like the difference in my work when I'm really loving what I do and it's meaningful versus just like profit focused um, ways of working. So it like changed my whole perspective of like realizing that I'm capable of doing it. Um, I have the expertise to do it in certain ways, like, and can use those different areas to actually apply to the like nonprofit field that I hadn't otherwise considered. Um, And that, yeah, I mean, it just like excited me to know that there were things that I was capable of that I could apply to the nonprofit sector and like, there's so much to learn, like through resources and everything. So I kind of just took it and ran with it. Um, The boss really liked me and hired me like right after I left that other job. So it kind of just flowed naturally. Gotcha. Yeah. You leave out the whole, the pantsuit phase, just like how I leave (laughs) out the whole totally heartbroken right after I graduated from college and traveling around Europe with a, with, with tears in my eyes to get, you know, (laughs) we just go straight to the climate change realty part of the story because that's exciting. Um, (laughs) But uh, how, how is your work with children? I mean, how long were you, were you living? You said in Nicaragua and and where else? Uh, Nicaragua and Mexico. I was living in San Diego during the time. So it's a San Diego based nonprofit that, uh, but we're super close to the border. We're like 30 minutes. So Mm -hmm. we would drive to the border and bring like donations and food and everything and like walk across the border and then go to the orphanages. And then with Nicaragua, we had like local teachers and like community-based like workers that are helping like psychologists um, and educators and they were learning English and all these different things that were like on the grounds in Nicaragua um, that were locals. And then we were just the people who were raising the money and like the funds to send it there essentially. Um, Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, my work with children, I, I was in before that uh, in college and high school, I was a nanny for 10 years. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I've been with kids or with kids since I was a kid and working with kids since I was like 12 years old. Um, right. And I guess the biggest like takeaway that I learned from both that time and then working for the nonprofit and just all that went into that was how much of a village it takes to raise a child. And it sounds so cliche, but it's so true. Like we, not everyone has like the privilege to have like a secure family with the financial resources and like the system of their government helping them and just all that goes into that. Um, And it just made me realize like how many different people doing what they can um, are needed to support not only children, but like everyone, how much of a longer way that goes when it's all communally based and kind of in the same way we need it for the climate crisis. Like it just really um, opened my eyes to like, not this nuclear family, but this wider array of individuals that can all support. And like the way, the way you can make an impact because of that um, when everyone works together to raise children and support them. Totally. I mean, if you bring it all the way back, we used to live in tribes where like people would all work together all the time. But even so now still in the United States, you spend a lot of time with your parents as a kid, but you know, five days of the week, at least 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., you're out in the care of the community. These teachers are teaching Mm -hmm. you, you're living with the other kids. So it is, it's totally true. We don't, we don't, grow up in vacuums unless you're, you're homeschooled and even they probably participate in soccer games and stuff still anyways, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was why the pandemic was so interesting. All the kids at home and not so being part of that community. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. Well, I was 
knocking on doors with my mask on. So I, we, we pushed through it. So why don't you tell me about the, uh, the Foundation for Climate Restoration and what exactly this organization is? Yeah, so we are a nonprofit dedicated to addressing the legacy emissions in our atmosphere and creating the ecosystem needed for that to exist. So we focus on education, advocacy, solutions. We started, we're still pretty new, started about a few years ago. Um, and we have a youth leaders program, a local chapter program, the solution series, which is what I'm working on, and just building all, working with multi-stakeholder engagement, really just like all like in states and governments and everything, the private sector, the public sector, like all that's needed to mobilize and educate and advocate for the future that we want to see. Totally. So for people who aren't aware, uh, the idea of legacy missions is something I like to bring up on the show a lot. And I think it's something really, really important to consider specifically for people who are, you know, most of my listeners are probably from, I don't know if Australia counts, but the US and the UK, we are, we are the legacy emitters. And what that is talking about is emissions that have already been emitted. A lot of discussion revolves around decarbonizing the economy and reducing future emissions. But we're going to talk a lot about, of course, and what I love talking about is the idea of restoration or regeneration and um, undoing damage that was done in the past, which besides the fact of, or regardless of what people who say that can't be, that we can't be done, that we're screwed, they're wrong because we have mechanisms in place to not only make things better today, but undo damage that we've uh, done in the past. So would you mind kind of shedding some light? Because we've been talking about adaptation on on the podcast a lot, which is being prepared for a change in climate. Um, mitigation, I suppose, would be the idea of, of decarbonization and then restoration. Mm-hmm. So would you mind just shedding some light on the difference between the three ways of thinking about climate and how it relates to the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So mitigation is what we always hear when, we're, when everyone's saying we need to go net zero. We need to get off of fossil fuels. We need to shift to clean energy. We need to consume less. All these things to live these either low carbon or zero carbon lifestyles. Um, And then adaptation is um, just adapting to what's going on right now. So with the example of where we're from um, in Long Beach, for example, hurricanes happen. So what are the resources that are supporting the community? And like, what are the funding that goes into that when when a hurricane hits? Um, We in Long Beach used to have like bungalow houses and now they're all on stilts. Um, Mm -hmm. And the bottom floor is like, you're not necessarily supposed to live there. Um, And all like the kitchens and living spaces are all above that because of hurricanes. So that would be like adaptation in a nutshell. Um, Same with wildfires. So like in local towns where there are wildfires, like what are the evacuation routes? Like what are the like forest management people doing to prepare Um, and all of that, that goes into that. And then restoration is just like, kind of looking at, okay, we know it's bad, but like, what can we do about it? Like when we go net zero and say we stop emitting today, we get off fossil fuels, it'd be amazing if we did it today and shift to clean energy. And we're in this zero carbon potential lifestyle. If that was like, it would be a miracle. But if we could do that today, there would still be all these emissions from all this time that are in our atmosphere continuing to warm our planet. So it's the realization that like, and the IPCC report came out with this confirming how essential it is in terms of focusing on carbon removal in addition to our mitigation adaptation goals. Mm -hmm. Because if, if you can't like, you can go net zero, but if you still have all these emissions there, it's still warming the planet and it's still harming the people on the planet. So it's realizing that we need to 
lean into solutions like regenerative regeneration and all of restoration types of solutions and figure out ways to safely and equitably and scalably remove these emissions from our atmosphere and store them away in the long term. I think it's so cool when I found out about it. The first person I talked to about it was Jennifer Menke from Regenerative Earth. And I had never heard of it. You know, I thought it was just like some um, Native American kind of indigenous people, hippie thing, um, which honestly, <laughs> I, I love that stuff anyways. But when yeah. you get when you dive into restoration, it's actually really cool. And it's one of the things that gives me so much hope is that this this carbon in the atmosphere, you can think about it as this horrible curse that's warming the planet. And it is it is causing life to be destroyed. But also another way you could think about it is we are carbon-based life forms. So carbon mm-hmm. really is like the seed to life. We can use it as feed to not only to not only fi- make the planet better, but f- return life that we've taken away through our extractive processes. So th- this kind of stuff gets me really, really excited. So I'm wondering what uh, I'll refer to the Foundation for Climate Restoration, because it's a long name, as FCR <laughs> from now on. Mm-hmm. So what is what is your plan to get CO2 back to pre-industrial levels by 2050? Because that's like the stated goal on the website, I think. And that, yeah. I, as contrary to what people might think, I, I think it's doable. It's a lot of gigatons, but we also have billions of people who are, you know, working and talking on the phone and stuff. So I feel like we can, we can, we can do a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's really the idea of 2050 is a goal, like to decide what is the future that we want to see. And like the second you set a goal, then you're like, okay, now what are the steps in between that those goals to get there? Um, so for us, I mean, we have our programs that we're like building in order to reach that, but also the solutions in place. Are you alluding more to like, what are the different programs we have or what are the types of solutions? I guess what are the programs that your organization is like supporting and proposing to get us to that actual goal? Yeah. So um, two of our biggest ones right now, um, not in addition to the solution series. So the local chapter program and the youth leaders program are both really built around advocacy um, and education. So, and that how that relates to policy generally, like our local chapter programs are focusing on policy at the local level realizing we need to build as the UN said when we went there telling them this is important you need to focus on this they're like yes but we need demonstration at the local level and from the bottom up to see that this is working um so our local chapter programs are really focused on that uh finding local policies for climate restoration and implementing them there to really start the the movement essentially and mobilize that from the bottom up and then with the youth leaders that was out of a demand from a lot of passionate youth that we are involved with. Our board member, Ashley Miki, worked to found that program, essentially. Um, And they are being educated. It's like a train-the-trainer approach. And they're being educated on climate restoration and then given the bandwidth they need to be able to go and speak on it. So they learn, like, how to public speaking and all of that and then, like, how to advocate for it. And then we support them both programs really in terms of connecting with other people, because like you really need everyone working together in a concerted effort to make a change. So those are two of our big priorities. Another one with the solution series um, is really focused on everyone as like, I'm sure, you know, with, we all hear about carbon removal or like people have heard of climate restoration and they hear these different solutions, but they don't really know how they compare against each other and like what the trade-offs are and like which ones are actually viable and like what that means when we talk about the gigaton scale, which is like much bigger scale than just like what we're doing now. So we need to get to a much higher scale. Um, 
So the solution series and other educational initiatives like our forum um, are really there to educate the community in order to get like, it, there's a lot of technical information and scientific information. It's really just like making that accessible to the general public. So people actually understand what's going on in order to feel like they have the agency and the education and the understanding to go and advocate for what they want to see, um, mainly through like policies and working with governmental leaders. Gotcha. Yeah, we're definitely going to go deep on the solution series because I think it's awesome. But yo, like last week, I like Googled, like how big is a gigaton? And there's this NASA simulator that does. Have you have you seen this before? Yeah, <laughs> with the giant block of ice in the in the mall in in DC, and it like goes like like up like twenty different buildings high of that, and that's just one gigaton, and we emit that like all the time. That's that's so yeah. crazy. Yeah, gigatons are a lot, but again, human productivity has no limit. I really believe so. If we emitted those gigatons, there's no reason why we can't draw them down in more effective means, and we're just at the cutting edge of this tech. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but before I go on a rabbit hole of that, I am wondering if you have some examples about like local policies that your organization is helping communities support to, to promote restoration in particular. Yeah. So one of the big ones that our local chapter pr- program is focused on right now is called LECLA um, or really focusing on carbon negative concrete. So low embodied carbon concrete um, passed in New York uh, is actually a big one. And it's basically like, so direct air capture captures the CO2 and then you can utilize that CO2 in products. And so they, instead of like cement, which uh, is like, I think global CO2 emissions from cement, I believe are like 8%. So it's a really Mm -hmm. big emitter. Um, Capture the CO2 and use it to store in cement. Um, And it actually makes the cement stronger too. So basically LECLA and different policies like that, that are related to that are incentivizing builders to use that type of um, product and then they get like a they're a better place in a bid and they're higher up and it really makes it easier to shift to using uh, concrete and different building materials that are better for the environment and also ultimately restoration because you're addressing the legacy emissions while also addressing a huge problem with the cement industry. So that's definitely probably my favorite um, in terms of what's going on right now and also like what we've seen a lot of movement with, especially in the U S and then that's a fantastic response. Anyone who's listening (laughs) to this now should go back and listen to the episode I did with, with Chris Stern from Carbicrete, because that Mm -hmm. is perhaps again, excellent point on rest restoration. It's one of the most comprehensive climate solutions I've come across. Talk about big human enterprise car concrete is not only, or cement, I'm not sure which one it was, is not only 8% of emissions. It's the second most used substance on the planet. So make, so having that be regenerative or restorative is a huge, huge win for, for all living things on earth. So that's always good. Mm-hmm. Um, one question I really wanted to ask you, and it's something that kind of bothers me. I, I don't really pay attention to the news, but I just assume that most people are talking about going net zero, but I think you and I and your organization agree that going beyond net, net zero is not only a good idea, but it's essential for restoring a, a livable climate. So why do you think we're only setting net zero goals and we're not setting, especially as the US or or the UK or Europe, setting like negative emissions goals even into the future. I wanted to just get your perspective on that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really great question. Honestly, the, I mean, we've seen this a lot, getting all global leaders to agree on both priorities and then ensuring that they're accountable for those priorities, like the Paris Agreement and different things like that at COP. Um, they tend to fall short 
um, in terms of the implementation of their words. So we're already trying so hard. This is like my personal perspective of why it's like not getting there. Um, We're already trying so hard to like get these people to be like, okay, we need to get off fossil fuels. We need to shift to clean energy, to carbon free stuff, to low carbon stuff. And we need to meet these goals in a timely matter. Um, And they're even for just net zero, they're falling short. So Mm -hmm. um, I mean, to even like ramp up the to be like, no, not climate restoration. Like we need to go net negative and we need to kind of address these legacy emissions in our atmosphere. It's like a whole nother extended jump for them, which shouldn't be tough if you're like the global leaders who are trying to decide the future of our planet. But unfortunately it seems to be so trying to get everyone to agree. Um, And so I think it really is just going to take both time and a global concerted effort of us demanding that and like really pushing and advocating for that. So when those big events happen to really make sure that that's a focus, which I believe with the upcoming COP um, in Egypt, there'll be like a, a pretty good fo- focus on carbon removal in addition to mitigation adaptation, which gives me a little bit of hope. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, like I said, just the the follow through with those commitments as well is something that needs to needs more focus and us really holding those people accountable who are in charge essentially. Yeah, that, that's a tough problem. I don't have an answer to, like I say all the time, I, I, I don't really pay much attention to the politics thing or get involved with trying to hold people accountable to anything except myself. Cause I, I disappoint myself with holding myself accountable, <laughs> let, let alone someone else. So that's a, right. that's, a, that's a tough thing, but when we need to do something, not only to save lives, but to make lives better, it's not only a carrot, it is, it's the carrot and a stick. It seems like mm-hmm. a, a no brainer, but life, life is complex. But one thing you can do is you can go on Statista.com and you can look up legacy emissions and see that the United States has emitted twice as much as the second most emitter or something like that. It might not be mm-hmm. quite twice. I think maybe China's like an 80 and we're like 130 or something. So yeah. I, I think we are responsible for our past emissions, for for warming the planet anyone who has done it i I feel personally is responsible i wanted to get your perspective on who you think is kind of most responsible for the task of climate restoration yeah so this i always this is a great question and i always think about it in two ways so the first is like there's the people who historically emitted the most or the um governments so the u.s like you said is one of those ones um and a lot of Yep. Number one. We always, and we're then, always number one. <laughs> Gotta be number one, right? Totally. <laughs> so we're also number one at that. Um, and in addition to other, uh, they say like the global North or the global South, but typically Corruption, like developed countries. Bad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of that. So, um, so I mean, ultimately it's the people, if you make a mess, like a waste management problem, you should clean up that mess or you should pay to clean up that mess. Um, So in terms of like, when we think about climate reparations, which are increasingly being talked about, that is where I see that happening, like ensuring like, okay, we have a great outline of who's emitted all of this over these years. And we, so therefore we ultimately know who will be in charge of cleaning it up. So from one perspective, those individuals who emitted the most or the fossil fuel companies or the governments and X, Y, and Z. Um, But then like kind of in that two part question, like, it's really also like we're going to need in terms of climate restoration to succeed, to have everyone involved. Like we want to, we want to get feedback, like the procedural processes and everyone to really work together 
in the development and the deployment to decide on the future that they want to see, to have their perspectives in the decision-making, to really make it like a global considered effort, um, which is ultimately going to need like an all hands on deck situation. So the way I see it is like, there's the people who are responsible, like the emitters. And then there's also the people who we kind of need if we really want to mobilize this and like see a change. Um, but I wouldn't call them responsible. Um, that second part. So, yeah, no, I respect that. And here's a touchy subject that can kind of bring us into our next topic as well is the general idea of reparations. I think people specifically talk about like race reparations in the U S the, the, the strange thing about that topic is that yes, the U S is responsible for the most emissions and yes, our ancestors treated um, African-Americans as slaves, which was wrong. And we all agree with that. But does that mean that the people who exist today should pay the reparations of something that their, their family members did in the past, I think is kind of still open for discussion. And I suppose Mm -hmm. that would, that could potentially be the case with the climate as well. I I never, I didn't actually think about it that way. I just figured we're still emitting the most today besides China. So I figure Mm -hmm. we're still responsible for that. But it's a it's a touchy topic. And I know you've spent a lot of time working on the connection between equity, justice and climate restoration. So I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on that and how these things can all work together to, you know, create a more wholesome and and just generally better planet, not only for life, but for all humans and everyone and every socioeconomic status, race background, religion, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this is definitely my like dear to my heart in terms of what I'm working on. Um, So up until 2022, when you would think about climate restoration, it was essentially three pillars, we say. So um, can the solution be scalable? Can it be financeable? Can it be permanent? Um, And then obviously, safety is always considered. Um, But for me, that always missed like a really key point of meaningful climate action, which is equity and justice. Um, And like really realizing more and more those who least contributed to climate change are the ones that are experiencing it the worst, both within the U.S. and from a global perspective. So to leave out the priorities of equity and justice, like is to like we really want to not risk the opportunity to ensure that the future we create is truly livable for everyone and not just a select few. Um, And after all, like if we restore the climate in 2050, that's amazing. But like, what does that mean if it's just focusing on the technical aspects? What does that mean for the communities of color or the queer and trans communities or the people in the global South who are just experiencing injustices today and inequities today? Are they still going to be experiencing that? Or can we design and approach this when we're in the very beginning stages in a way that considers that so the future is meaningful and flourishing for everyone and not just um, a few individuals so yeah i see it as very interconnected and like both people and the planet and just realizing that every other action has a reaction so prioritizing it really ensures those actions can reduce harm they can really benefit everyone and they can address all the intersectionalities of the society societal problems we have but also the climate problem we see today yeah it's a complex thing and I, i appreciate your perspective on that i'm Curious what justice means to you. For example, I was listening to the the Joe Rogan podcast yesterday and he had Gad Sad on, on the show, who's a controversial figure who has um, controversial ideas. Very interesting to hear. But they were specifically talking about the death penalty. And he asked mm-hmm. Joe what his perspective on the death penalty was. And he says, if we knew for certain, I'd be for it. 
um, but we don't. So the the thing the, the reason I bring that up is because I'm opposed to the death penalty outright. No, I don't feel that humans have a right to make judgment on someone else, whether or not they're allowed to live, regardless of their crimes. And I personally believe that you should treat everyone well, no matter how terrible they are. It doesn't mean that we put up murderers on a pedestal, but to take their life seems wrong to me. Whereas what someone else might view that as justice. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. how, how do you think about justice? What does that, what does that actually mean to you? Yeah. Great question. And I think this is different for everyone. Like you can, I right. can give you like this, the, the scientific definition essentially, mm-hmm. but I'll, in terms of what it means to me, like there's equity and justice and, and from like the equity side, it, it's pretty intertwined, but equitable is kind of the idea of like, okay, is this fair? Like we don't want to like, it's almost like re- more like reducing harm um, and preventing new harms from happening. Um, but I, it, the reason we bake kind of justice into the way we assess equity is because justice, like in, from my perspective is more about like correcting those harms or repairing those harms. And really like it not just being the status quo, but actually thinking like, okay, what were the root causes of this and how, how can we change things in order to ensure justice essentially? So like really considering and learning from things instead of just kind of keeping it from not being bad again. Right. So I, I, I think about this video I saw, and I'm sure if you've ever seen it, where they have all these people lined up on a line and they're going to do a, a race and then there's money at the end of the race, I think. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And then they, they like take a bunch of people and push them like halfway towards the finish line and push some people behind the finish line. And they're like, this is life. Equity would be everyone starting at the the same, fin- fin- same line, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's actually another great like, picture that I see a lot if you type in like equality versus equity um like equal there's like people trying to look over a fence and they're all in like these with the stool yeah yeah the stools and it's like equality means they all have the same stool um I might be getting this wrong so you guys I recommend going to look this up after but basically like equity is so they can all see over the fence um Mm -hmm. so like realizing that we don't all start with the same baseline because of privileges and that like we can do things to make it equitable in terms so we all have the same opportunities. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I've said on the show several times, this is about as political as I'll get, is that I really believe in the idea of a universal basic income because mm-hmm. as a someone who's really focused on business, I believe that if you invest in your people, that you will get a return. And I think mm-hmm. that works in society as well. And I'm not talking about giving everyone an apartment. I don't like this, like all the different things going on in in different parts of the world, people dealing with homelessness and inequalities. But I I believe in the idea of people being able to have like a place to stay, some rice and some beans, like a bare base level. Um, Otherwise we're not, we're not being as good as we possibly could be. And it just seems yeah. like I'm, I'm a big fan of simple solutions. But yeah, thank you for addressing this this with me. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like a great example of that was during the pandemic when I was on like reduced hours unemployment. So like my hours were cut in half and mm-hmm. that like additional 600 that was going to people who were unemployed at that time. I had so many friends and so many people I know who came up with the most creative and inspiring small businesses during that time. And like it gave them the chance because they knew that like they could pay their rent and they could pay their healthcare and stuff. 
um, to a degree, of course, but like, then they could focus on things that actually lit them up. That's when I start, I started working for F4CR during the pandemic because Mm -hmm. of that reason, because I had the agency to start committing to something that I was more passionate about because I had this support. So I, yeah, I love the idea and I, I hope that's what the future holds. Um, and I think we're starting to realize that. It does. The future holds what what we want. We we are the society. You know, we're the government. We're everything. There's this really interesting um, story in Simon Sinek's book Leaders Eat Last, where he talks about Bob Chapman's company, and I'm not sure which one it is, where he treats all of the employees really, really well, and then the the 2008 recession hits, and they have to modify their businesses. And instead of he says, we're not going to lay anyone off. We're going to make sure that everyone just reduces their hour. So everyone's taking the the hit equally. And like people mm-hmm. who normally would make more money are willing to work less to help out the other person so that they can still keep making money. And that's what happens when you treat your employees really, really well in, in Chapman's company. I thought that was really interesting and kind of relates. So cool. Let's, let's, let's get into talking about the solution series because I think it's really cool. And you guys are just like uh, tipping that off now. Are we like in the middle of it right now? We're tipping off. We're in month two. So pretty much the beginning. (laughs) Awesome. So what is it? Yeah. So the solution series is an educational initiative that is kind of meeting, like addressing the needs of people who want to learn more about climate restoration and carbon dioxide removal. Um, But it is, it can be pretty technical. And like, if you go and read a science paper about it, it's so easy to get lost in that. And it's not very accessible which creates like almost a barrier between all these people that we want to be involved, to be involved in these things. So um, it's really seeking to give them the bandwidth they need to both ignite and inspire advocacy around CDR solutions. Um, Basically we release all these different types of educational materials. So we have a white paper, a blog post, um, an explainer video with these really cool animations um, and then an expert panel. And we release them every Tuesday. And we bring together different experts to both review the white paper and then also uh, join the panel as well. Um, And then really just kind of increasing, like as we're writing this information and building upon this information, we're always bringing it within the context of climate restoration. So in each white paper, for example, we'll have a section that's on scalability, that's on financeability, that's on durability or permanence, um, and then that's on equity. And we kind of form that assessment within each white paper based on those four criteria. Um, And then, of course, talk about how it works and all the different perspectives and good facts and stuff. Um, But really for people to understand, like, okay, there's all these different solutions um, and like this is actually how they compare to each other, because uh, I I think maybe you saw this when there was something about I think it was direct air capture or something. And everyone was like the government was supporting it and they were like, well, why don't we just plant trees? And it's like, well, yeah, we love trees, which is actually what May is about forest carbon practices essentially, but to remove as much carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as direct air capture can do with like the size of Connecticut would require like, I believe it's the U S twice over. So it's like the trees. Yeah. So like the land space you need to actually scale that because of primarily like obviously deforestation contributed to that like ultimately what we talk about is like well conserving these trees right now is super important but like the projects and the ipcc report has discussed this as well um like afforestation projects with carbon offsets have predominantly been in the global south and paid as carbon offsets for companies in the global north to Mm -hmm. write off their emissions essentially or offset them um 
And then that takes up like the agricultural land that these local communities in the global south might need to serve their communities who are experiencing climate change now. So there's always all these contributing factors that kind of take into the context. And that's really what the solution series is, is to kind of like bring that context in for everyone um, and pull it all together and then also discuss like how it compares across the different solutions. Okay, so you used some some verbiage there that people might not be completely familiar with. So the solution series is about CDR, which is right, which is carbon dioxide removal. This is that mm-hmm. restoration we're talking about, getting rid of legacy emissions, right? And for yeah. any, and cor- correct me if I'm wrong. What the the issue with afforestation, which you were just discussing, which is different than reforestation, is that it could cover up farmlands because afforestation is planting trees where they were not previously versus mm-hmm. reforestation, which is planting trees where there were before, right? Yeah, exactly. You got it. You got it exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So there's a really fantastic article about CDR carbon dioxide removal from American university, which is where mm-hmm. my 2020 film was based off that most of my oh, information. No yeah. If about carbon dioxide removal comes from this very short um, American university article. And we've talked about several of these solutions on the podcast already. You mentioned direct air capture, which is mm-hmm. using technology to suck wind or whatever air goes through a thing that can that actually collects carbon it's a machine that sucks carbon out uh, we mm-hmm. now mentioned afforestation is planting new trees reforestation is planting trees where they were before would would saving forest wouldn't count as as a solution would it that's like a well we actually do count it um so okay. I, I didn't go I actually didn't go into the paper thinking as deeply about the connection between that but when you compare like the amount of emissions that are continually being released into our atmosphere as a result of deforestation it does affect climate restoration because the more it continues to be released the more of an uphill battle we're trying to get to to remove those the, like all the emissions that are still being emitted into the atmosphere so the more we can okay. conserve that in addition to it it, it does like contribute to climate restoration, but you're not necessarily restoring, you're just protecting in order to make the restoring a lot of an easier lift. Gotcha. And um, the other ones I'm familiar with because of that article are upwelling and downwelling, which is an ocean-based climate solution involving taking nutrients from the ocean and feeding phytoplankton, whether it's up or down, and that and Mm -hmm. the phytoplankton grow off carbon and then they sink down. And then the only other direct air or, or sorry, carbon CDR solution that I'm aware of is um, mineralization, which is using mm-hmm. um, a rock, usually olivine, which naturally sequesters carbon by being laid out somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. What else? What, what else we got? Anything? Yeah. So, um, I mean, in order, we'll ha- we had direct air capture last month and now we were on forest carbon practices. Next month, we're doing soil carbon sequestration and right. regenerative agriculture. Oh, that's yep. huge. That's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, I mean, I don't want to choose favorites, but like not favorites in terms of climate restoration, but like just because I'm like, yeah, like I have my own garden out here and I'm like planting cover crops and like making compost. And I just like think it's just the most amazing thing for like the co-benefits and just like shifting the way we relate to our land and relate to like the people. And then also just like a huge opportunity for like the indigenous people and black and brown people and all these like uh like Asian Americans and everyone these are the people who like 
for thousands of years have been practicing these practices. And now we're like, we like, there have been so many injustices within like the system of agriculture. And now we're getting to like, put them back as these experts and like honor that and learn from them and just like, just bring it throughout the entire world, which I think is incredible. I, I love the co-benefit aspect of it. Is there anything, what about like ocean permaculture? Cause we're about to do an episode, I think right after this about growing uh, seaweed forests. Is that, is, mm-hmm. that, is that, is that part of, that's not, that's different from downwelling and upwelling, right? Different from downwelling and upwelling. Yes. So we'll have a, a coastal blue carbon. I think July is coastal blue carbon. Oh, okay. So that'll be like, um, like peatlands and mangroves and more of like a natural side. Gotcha. And then the following month we'll have deep ocean CDR, um, which will include like upwelling and downwelling. And then those like marine permaculture arrays. So like the kelp deep in the ocean and just all that that's considered. Um, yeah. So we'll talk on, we kind of compare, uh, separate it in terms of it's all oceans, but like different, more like technological or deeper ocean solutions and versus like the coastal community solutions that like we would see right out front. I live right by um, UC at University of California, San Diego. Um, and they are always doing like different things with coastal blue carbon and all of that. It's really interesting. That's so cool. People need to check this out. Where can they find it? Um, the solution series on our website under learn, you can click down and then there's all, you can search different solutions. So there's, since it's in the beginning there, you can kind of see them all, but as we'll get more solutions, you'll be able to search the content and filter it by what you're interested in. If you're interested in the natural side, the technological side and, and carbon storage versus carbon and removal, um, it'll all be there. Awesome. Have you put any thought into making these solutions like economically viable, scalable, and not dependent on philanthropy in any way. This is something that I'm constantly exploring. Like I said, I've talked about the potential for human innovation and us to, you know, get all the the carbon out of the air, the giant blocks of ice, billions and billions or millions of lots of gigatons. Um, Uh I think the only way to really do it is to have it a like a scalable business model. So has you put any thought of this or your organization have any ideas about this? This is something I'm always thinking about trying to ask people about. Yeah, no, great question. So two of our like pillars essentially are scalability and financeability. Um, so we're always thinking about it. And, and in each solution series white paper, there's a whole section on like how to scale the solution. And we really um, like, I mean, with the gigaton scale, we both are under the understanding of how big that is. Um, so honestly, like significant funding from governments is going to probably really move that needle. So ramping up the research and development funding, developing more innovative technologies. So the government investing in innovation, um, investing in making things safe and bringing new co-benefits and uh, really scaling these technologies, driving down the cost. So like with solar, we've seen it used to be really expensive and like no one could really get solar. And then with all like the ways in which the government worked with it, it's now affordable enough for me to have it on my van, which is like incredible. Incredible. So thinking about like direct air capture and more of those technological solutions that are on the expensive side, um, kind of taking that same like learning by doing model and just like really driving down the cost by uh, government, like federal funding and international funding, local funding um, is definitely going to move the needle. Of course, there's like the private sector funding, um, like Stripe and Shopify are like big investors are funding carbon removal. Um, but it's not a requirement, like we said. So like 
whether it's going to be a compliance market and like requiring government mandates essentially for like people to have to remove the emissions that they're putting out there or however that will pan out. It's definitely probably going to come through um, the government, which is why so much of our programs are based around like advocacy and policy. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I have thoughts I could share about that, but I think I've I've said enough of my thoughts on this podcast. It's been really it's really, been really delightful talking to you. Um, how can people get more involved with the work that you're doing at FCR F4CR? <laughs> yeah, it's been great talking with you too. I really enjoyed this, and thank you for having me. Um, they can go on our website, so you can actually type in f4cr.org, and it should take you to our website instead of spelling out foundationforclimaterestoration.org. Um, if you want to stay involved with both the solution series and just all the work we're doing, you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, and then we have a solution series specific newsletter, both are on our website. Um, and then yeah, every you can uh, sign up to be a youth leader on there. If you want to start a local chapter, you can sign up there. All of that is available. Um, and we definitely encourage it. So yeah, excited to have more and more people joining the movement. I encourage it as well. They're doing some really cool stuff, as you can tell. They're on the cutting edge of it. So I think it's this is a good organization to, to get in contact with. Do you have any uh, final pieces of advice for young folks who are just passionate about building a better world? Yeah, um, not to give up hope and really realizing that it's possible. And there are ways in which we can get involved. I always like grew up thinking even after Hurricane Sandy and in college, I was a psychology major. So I was like, I feel like uh, climate is reserved for like scientists and didn't realize like how many people are both needed and are both able to all use their different abilities and talents and everything to get involved. And that's, that's true in all the nonprofit sectors. So the social justice side and everything, like we really need everyone to join in and like an all hands on deck situation and we all have a role to play so keep reading learning staying educated about everything that's going on in the world and how it connects and intersects um and then really just get involved in organizations because it's so hard to like keep the momentum going when you're alone and you feel like you're alone and you're the only one engaged in it so like our youth leaders program is great um they have a slack where they can communicate they're all involved together so different programs like that and getting involved locally or online with people who are like-minded and really care about the same things is a great way to make it go a long way and um also sleeping and resting and taking breaks because we need to do this for the long haul so totally. go take a nap <laughs> definitely and as soon as you're done get after it everyone as as <laughs> i can attest it's a good time so i highly recommend it absolutely delaney thanks for the time it's been a pleasure yeah thank you you got it all right everybody and we'll see you on the next one peace out So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.